And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So I'm sitting here with Dr. Denon, uh, my favorite superhero scientist, possibly my favorite scientist, definitely a top three. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dan. Th- th- <laughs> thanks for being here. <laughs> oh, it's always a pleasure. Now, at, we're going to talk about your incredible book, Divine Science, uh, and, and pardon my sacrilegious phrase here, but this is a hell of a book. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Not sacrilegious at all. Uh, that's I take that as a compliment. <laughs> that's good. No, this is... This is a great book. You know, it's funny. I had to whip out some of the uh, some SAT words. I had the dictionary pretty ready. Yeah, I, it's, it's a, little, it's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> um, we tried. You know, it, it's it's a challenge because, as I say, neither religion nor science is an easy topic. Yeah, and true. I wasn't really willing to totally pull punches, but you still try to avoid jargon when you can, and occasionally you don't win that battle. Now you got and you got to kind of pick one of them. But you, what here's what I love about it is I. So I'm, I have a similar background. I grew up Catholic. Uh, I love science. And I always found that when, as you grow up in the world, you start to realize that when you start talking about religion and faith in particular, it's hard to analyze it from a scientific standpoint because people, as you mentioned in the book, take a hard stance, whether it's, it's kind of everyone's proving each other wrong right. or right. You exactly. Know? And you take a totally different approach here. I tried. I really just said, look, here's where I am. I think God exists, but that's my assumption. Yeah. But let's ask ourselves, let's ask ourselves what really are the assumptions we want to make. Right. And you're going to have to make some and then explore the implications of those. And I think that's a much more fruitful way to go. No, absolutely. And what I loved about it is that it's, it's finally, like I'm able to have an intelligent scientific conversation about religion. Uh, and, and you do that from beginning to end. Like, it's great because it's not the, – the reason why I think people will like this book is because you're a religious scientist. Like, you have a faith that you're – you know, that you, you're – I don't know if devout's too strong of a word. No, it's, it's actually – I would say um, faithful. Devout, it depends what people mean by it, but yes, certainly practicing. Yes, practicing. There you go, practicing. And I think – so I think – and you're in the, the level of science that you deal with is pretty high level. Yeah. And you, you've got a prestige with you. So I think people should take this book very seriously. I, I hope so. And I think that's what I tried to bring to it. When I read in this space, um, it, it's hard to, I think, find – because people are always trying to prove a side, it's hard to find particularly from the pro – for lack of a better word, from the pro-religion faith side, it's often, I hate to say it, hard to find good science. Right. Um, because they're trying often, I think, to stretch the science beyond what it can do. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think that's another good point that you make in the book is that science is, the science job is to prove what you can see, and faith's job is to prove what you can't see, yeah. sort of. And those do your job. Don't do someone else's job. Exactly. You know, like that's basically what you're saying here. Very much. Uh, and, and I also love the fact that you kind of, I think people, 
I think it's a natural instinct that people are have opinions and they don't want to be proven wrong. And when people start to hear stuff that may kind of shake their core tenets, they don't really think like, oh, maybe I should like reevaluate what I'm thinking and maybe adjust what I believe to what the reality of the situation is. They say, no, this is shaking my foundation. That can't happen. They get scared, go into panic mode and become protective and then go on the offensive. And I think that's where like the dialogue is right now. No, I think that's very true, Dan. And, 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 and it's a little bit of a shame because we oversimplify. We say, okay, if this part of what I believe turns out to be wrong, then what if everything's wrong? Right. And that's rarely the case. Right, right. right. Usually it's, no, now I can improve in my understanding of whatever it is I'm doing. And that's how science works when we're at our best. And not even scientists do that all the time, even in science. But at our best, we recognize that when we accept where the mistakes are, we're only moving towards a better clarity and more truth. Right. Well, because I mean, I think the goal for everyone should be, what's the truth? Like, wh- what's actually going on? Not what do I believe is going on? Right. And I think that's, it's distinct. That's like a razor's edge you're walking. No, it is. And it's also tough because when you cross over, so as I say in the book, science, what we're very good at is understanding the rules that physical reality be it, follows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and obeys. There may be more to reality than physical reality. That's, to me, the exciting question. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily have a tool as powerful as science to explore that. So there will be some aspects of, you know, I just don't know if I'm right, but this is what my experience tells me is the most likely thing that's right. Right. And there's a big difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so now let's let's get into some of this stuff. Let's talk about. Let's break it down. Okay. We got a, this is I got yeah. five pages of notes to okay. go through. Basically, the outline of your book. Uh, <laughs> I took this seriously, Doctor Denon. Uh, now, now, the first thing that you that you talk about is is what is the definition of God as we can um, th- the best we can come up right. with. The fullness of reality is the term that you use. That's that's book. my new favorite term. It, it's a good one. Uh, so now, how did you come up with that? Like, what does that encompass? That you break it down for people. So I'm probably sure I learned it from someone. I will say a caveat at the beginning, which I say in my book. Mm-hmm. I've learned a lot over my life from a lot of people, and I'm old now, and I can't remember who they are. So I can't always appropriately <laughs> cite. You know, it's kind of like I, I'm an academic at heart, and you like to cite your references and your sources. Sure. And I don't remember who half of them are. So <laughs> as long as you don't misquote me and give me proper credit, we got no problem. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Now, so what I realized is, you know, God is a loaded term, mm-hmm. and there's clearly a lot of views of God in the past that I think were pretty clear or wrong. I tell people, you know, clearly God is not a person in a chariot driving horses flying through the sky making sure. the sunshine. We, we, we figured we can out all the agree sun. on that. We've all agree on that. Yeah. But so I said to myself, what would be a much more useful way to think about God in a neutral way so we could have conversation? I realized almost every faith tradition I know of, at the end of the day, I think God just is everything. Right. That's why we use the word. There's this mystery of what is everything. I mean, sure. the infinite in everything is a bit overwhelming, hard to use words and think about it. But that's kind of what it comes down to. OK, no, that, that makes sense. Um, and I think like as you go into explaining like, what exactly that is, because y- you've got a lot of metaphors in the book that you use yes. to kind of get people's head around it. Um, not to jump too far ahead, but what I what I like, um, there's one example that you give that that I found to be particularly useful for me, as you talk about the um, basically the solar system, right, and how the solar system is planets around you know a sun. Oh no no, it's the atoms around an, an electron. Right. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, um, but it ad- how we describe electrons circling a nucleus, and right. you know it's on, it's similar to the solar system. Right. 
but in the actuality it's quantum physics where we can't really tell where something is, it's probability, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But I like that, and you kind of use that for God as well. Well, so I do talk about how, you know, if we want to understand something as challenging and hard as God, we're only going to be stuck at the end of the day with metaphors and images, just like what we mm-hmm. did with, with the atom. It's easier to understand uh, that way. It's easier to understand. Yeah, visualization. And, and the problem is realizing that our metaphor or image is not actually what God is. It's telling us something about God that is, and those, those metaphors and images change in time as to what's most useful for us. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have the classic Michelangelo image of God. Right, right, on right. the Sistine Chapel of the yeah. guy with the flowing white hair and the beard. Sure. And, and that's useful in certain situations and times and places, but it's not useful for other things. So yeah. you have to understand that is not God. That is one metaphor or image for something God would do. Right. Well, and I think one of the overriding kind of um, la, uh, like points in your book, like the thing that kind of th- that stuck with me is that metaphors are great to a point. You know, yep. uh, but when you start taking things literally and you start, you know, basing your life decisions on this literal translation of a story that was really just meant to give you the point of something yeah. and not the reality of it, that's where problems happen. I think that's very true. And to believe that God is actually just a human looking person bigger than us sitting on a cloud of the beard, uh, that's detrimental when you take that to the nth degree. It is. It is. Know? And that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, now let's talk about the two cookie rule. That you yes. Oh, the two with. cookie rule is very important. Yes. Let's get it. Has a, with cookies, I think. Everyone yeah. Knows. It has a long tradition in our family. And, yeah. and so in the book I talk about, I realized I'm going to talk about a lot of hard science. Yeah. And it's not necessarily going to make sense to people right away. And they're going to feel nervous about that. And then I realized, you know, it was a lot like when I was a kid, we had a rule in our family that you can only eat two cookies, mm-hmm. which I could execute the rule. Mm-hmm. Right. Those words, I understood every word in that right. sentence. <laughs> yeah. It made absolutely no sense to me. Cookies are good. Why would you eat only two? Right. 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 I will say, fast forward, as an adult, you understand the challenges and problems of more than two cookies. Um, They're still good. And as my kids pointed out, for years, they couldn't figure out why the cookies would disappear overnight that were in the house. (laughs) And they finally learned I was eating them all while they were asleep. Um, But so I don't always follow the two cookie rule very well. But there's this thing I found with people. We understand things. We feel like we understand things only when we truly intuitively understand them, mm-hmm. even if we actually do understand. So I, I, I actually understood the two cookie rule as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could execute it. I could do it. I knew what it meant and I could follow it. I didn't feel like I really understood it. It wasn't like ingrained and intuitive in me. Right. And a lot of physics and science falls in that category. People are convinced when I explain something to them, particularly quantum mechanics mm-hmm. or relativity, they're like, I, that's just too hard. I don't get it. Right. And they just haven't heard it as much as I have, right? You know, sure. th- they actually, I think, really don't realize how much they understand about it, right? If they just take the words at face value and realize they really do mean what they mean, I'm not really doing something sneaky or tricky. It, it really is, that's all it is. It's that simple. But they assume it can't be because it's physics and they're not comfortable with it and they don't have an intuition. And, and that's what, you know, I know many of my peers, I know for myself, learning physics was like that. It was... You use something over and over and over, and then finally you believe you understand it. So I warned him in the book, if there's science that's really hard, and even if there's religion that's really hard, just go back to the two-cookie rule. Right. Trust the words. (laughs) Well, if you don't know what quantum or mechanics are, I mean, they can still get a really weird picture in your head of these. You you can, but, but it's the explanation I give is hopefully using words that mean something to people, and they should trust that I picked words carefully. Yes, no, that, that you did. 
You know, and the point on that is, you know, we have faith in these scientific concepts as well. You yes. Know? And, and that's part of what you're saying is, you know, that's kind of what you're talking about is people have faith in the religious concepts and people have faith in these scientific concepts because you can't see it all. Gravity has a lot of different definitions. Yeah. You know, Newton had a definition. Einstein had a definition. This is all relative. Yeah. You know, in a way. No, it's true. And the, the, the slight difference is with science, because we're dealing with the things the senses directly measure, we've figured out how to do experiments with numbers and predict things. Mm-hmm. And it's the predictive power that gives us um, a level of trust in science. Yes. And, and I think w- with religion and faith, we have experience, but we don't necessarily have that same level of reproducibility and repeatability by definition mm-hmm. because it's about our own individual experience of reality. Right. And our, we, we kind of know each other experience by talking about it, but that's yeah. never the same as actually having the experience at the end. Yeah. So it's a little more amorphous. It's harder to really feel like we've proved something in that area. No, that's fair. And I want to come back to that. So I, I like your Plinko example. I want to come back to that. Right. But you lay down a couple of concepts that I think are really important to kind of get out of the way early on, like truth versus facts. Yes. Uh, this one, this is actually deeper than, than it sounds. It is a bit deeper than it, it is, sounds. It really is, because when you understand that, um, you, you know, it, it, it kind of like opened my eyes as I was reading the book. I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And that's such a great way to describe the stories in the Bible. It is. Uh, tell me what that means. So I, I think for me, one of my favorite examples these days is like the Noah Ark story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, facts, that's what we talk about that our senses measure, you know, things like a quarter is 25 cents. That's just a fact. That's how we've defined it. We right. know it. You know, if I let go of something, all things being equal, there's nothing weird going on. Gravity pulls it down and it falls. Mm -hmm. Um, Truth are these things that we as humans, we've really tried to understand aspects of reality at a deep level and and, and sort of communicate it to each other. Mm -hmm. And so in our day and age, we read the Noah Ark story and we're all worried about, well, can you really make an ark that you fit all the animals in? What are the lions and tigers going to eat? You know, how do you flood the earth? How, with how do you water flood the whole earth right, with water? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we worry about the facts, but we forget that that was at a time. I mean, we still do this. We still have our movies and our books that communicate truths without being true, but we're not as embedded in it. And at that time, everything was about storytelling. And everybody, every culture had a story of a flood because that's what you did, right? You lived near rivers and they occasionally like wiped out the village. Sure. And usually the reason for the flood was some angry God. Right. So imagine you're hearing this story for the first time, living in that time, you know, you're gonna think, oh, angry God flood story, cool, I know this one. It's like going to the movies where it's like the same story you've seen forever, right? Right. And you're like, okay, it's fine, you're listening, you're waiting for the people to be wiped out, cool, they got wiped out, right? No, the hero's being saved. And you get to the end and God says, you know what? I'm never, ever, ever gonna do this again. And you're like, whoa. You mean like there's a God that's not gonna get mad? I mean, it's gonna be, it's like the shocking twist that a really great movie would give you at the end, where you're going right. along thinking you know the story, and you get to the end and you're like, whoa, yeah. that was cool, that's different. Yeah. And that's what those readers would have heard. They wouldn't have worried about the ark and the animals and the flood. They would have been like, what's this new truth? You know, a right. God that's not gonna kill us all. Right, no, and that's true because you know now we're so worried about the details of something. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was just watching a show, uh, I won't tell you which one, although I know you'll love it. Um, <laughs> it's called Westworld, I will tell you the show, okay. Westworld. Um, 
But someone shoots a gun, and spoiler alert, they shoot it eight times, and it's a revolver. With so six, it, with six, six bullets. bullets. <laughs> yeah. So like stuff like that drives me crazy. But exactly. those are like the facts. Did it matter? Because on screen, the sto- the point they were trying to make came through. Right. And I think. You know, I was watching um, Kevin Smith's Dogma, which is a great movie. And in it, they make the point that Christians have a hard time with the phrase mythology. They do. And I understand why, because they treat Greek mythology like kid stories that aren't true. And when you start calling the saints and, you know, the, all the, uh, the mythology, you know, of, of the characters in the Bible, people have a hard time with that because then you're saying, hey, this is phony. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's phony in the same way that the Greek mythologies are phony, but those told really important stories and th- human themes that still exist today. Yeah. You know? And I think that's true. And it's, it's really the difference between myth with a capital M in my mind. You know, where it's the big stories we tell, the epic stories that get to truth. Yeah. And maybe myths with a small M, like urban myths and urban legends, where we use the word myth to mean false. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, most people, when they stop and think about it, they're like, I mean, I I, I think I actually told this story in the book. I'll never forget my freshman religion class in high school, in my Jesuit high school, where like the first day the priest asked how many people think the story of Adam and Eve actually happened the way it's told. Um, and I will be honest, I did not raise my hand at that point. I had oh. already been kind of in Good my cool science thing. Almost everybody else did. And this, it was this older priest, turned his chair around, sat down, looked at all of us, and screamed, you're all wrong. It's a myth. You know? <laughs> but then he went on to explain that it's a truth. That's what he meant by a myth. But Got it's it. not a thing that had to actually happen. Right. You know, it's because it's funny because people get lost in that. And they I remember do. when I went to school, I went to uh, Northern Illinois University. And at the time, I didn't realize it, but they had several denominations of Christianity there. And everyone was recruiting people all the time. Right. But you have this spectrum, which is another thing that, that always is, is crazy. Like there's this spectrum of belief. And I remember there were people on the floor who, in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence, would tell you that the Earth was 6,000 years old. Yeah. And, and I was like, but... But hold on, like you can't, you can't, they can, you, you know, yeah. it's like you can't so deny the, that. So the only way you can do that, which is true, you could is the following. You, you can imagine if your assumption, and again, it goes back to assumptions. I think people get confused about what they've proven versus what their assumption is. Uh-huh. If your assumption, and this is going to sound a little mean to people who believe this, so I apologize, but it is, okay. you know, the way I see it. If your assumption is God is sufficiently mean and tricky. Mm-hmm. Right. I can imagine a God that would create a world that would look like it was older than 6,000 years, mm-hmm. tell a few select people it's a trick. It's only 6,000 years old. Right. And if you don't believe that it's 6,000, I'm going to send you to hell. Right. Right. So you could imagine right. this complicated scenario where they're right. Yeah. But that's not really the kind of God that I see in the Bible. Right. Right. Because it's kind of a tricky, mean God. Yeah. And it's. It, that doesn't match my experience or make sense to me. Right. But the other option is for people like that, they're so worried. Again, what we said way earlier, they're so worried that if the Bible's not literal, mm-hmm. what else do I have to give up? Right. And they don't right. realize that they don't have to give up much. No, you really, you really <laughs> don't. Like, because it's more like the core basis of a lot of these religions 
are pretty accurate. I mean, yeah. from what I was reading in the book, I was like, I can totally get on board with that because I don't have any preconceived notions of. Lo- I don't like dogmatic religions. Like, right. I, I, I mean, that's I, which is funny that you're Catholic because no, that's why is. I gave up Catholicism. <laughs> well, uh, but they, I'm, I didn't give up spirituality. Though. But but we got Pope Francis now. Yeah, that's true. He's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like like that surprised me. But but as you broke it down, I was like, I can get on board with all this stuff. But I'm not scared to admit that. Right. You know, like I'm fine with that. Like it's yeah. if there's a God or not, I, I whether I believe it or not is irrelevant. <laughs> so why would I have the arrogance to say like, no, I'm right? It's like, well, it doesn't matter if I'm right. It it is it is whether I believe it or not. And that's some you know you just said something that's so critical that I actually Thank heard you. a friend of mine say, and that's what I do. No, it is what you do. The difference between humility and arrogance. And go. people forget that both science and religion should take extreme humility. You have to understand that you may never be, first of mm. all, you'll never be all right because it's just too much. Yeah. And you may be significantly wrong. <laughs> and, and you've just. It's a big risk. It's a big risk. And you, yeah. have to appro- you have to approach it all with that humility. No, absolutely. And I'm a great enough man to admit that I'm. And, and you're, you're an amazing man. We know from everything <laughs> we've done together, Dan, that. That's yeah. true. If nothing else, you're, you're <laughs> humble. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. And, and one of the things I wanted to talk about is, is there's almost like a slow progression of acceptance. So I think you mentioned in the book that. Um, you know, people are comfortable with uh, gravity, for example. Right. You know, um, germ theory. But evolution is one that's always a sticking point. It is. And it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of funny. There's, there's the famous sort of image of, of um, Christians, particularly ones who take the Bible literally, saying, oh, you know, we couldn't have come from monkeys. And, and my, my first thought is, and pond scum is better? I right. mean, like the literal translation of, of dirt or mud yeah. It's something pretty much more along the lines of scum or earth. Sure. I mean, it's a pretty, you know, vivid image of what we're made of. Yeah. And in fact, isn't that just what evolution says is right out of the pond scum, right. we slowly work our way up to humans. Yeah. And, and if you imagine any creative process, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I've, I've attempted and failed pottery a few times in my life. Right. If you imagine making sort yeah. of anything, it goes through an evolution. Right. And goes through stages. So why wouldn't God create that way? No, why, would, why would the only choice be that Oop, person? Right, right, yeah. Right, like just <laughs> burp, like it's magic. They yeah, appear. exactly. You, and this is one of the, like, I love biology. So you know you're right. a physics guy. I love yeah. like, oh, life well, science. I love biology. It's just too hard for me. That's why I did physics. It's tough stuff. <laughs> well, the surface, so let's talk about the surface stuff. We'll get into the chemistry aspects yeah. of it. But, you know, when you start talking about evolution, it's always amazed me that it exists. We watch it exist in bacteria in low levels. And I remember there was uh, this in, in uh, uh, high school, I was taking AP Biology, and we learned about this experiment by Sidney Fox. Do you know about this experiment? I think so. So basically, he created the same conditions as the primordial soup right. on Earth. And from that was able to create um, they're called microspheres, but they could they, they asexually reproduced. They were able to create proteinotides, I believe they call yeah. them, which are like kind of amino acids. But, yeah. but 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 talk about building blocks of life. They were created, which means it's possible. Yeah, I'm not saying it happened here, um, but I'm not saying it didn't happen here. No, but and that's it, amazing. It is amazing, and 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 I I think again for people of faith and religion who are having trouble with evolution. What I try and point out to them is, which is more amazing? You know, sort of a magical Zeus-like God who says, zap, and you have two people. 
or a God that is able to create a set of rules out of which emerges exactly what God wants, which is us. Right. I mean, to me, that second one is just, it blows my mind. Yeah. It, it's it's like, wow. And so isn't that what it's about? No, I told <laughs> But like, let, that exists, that happened, right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean any. It doesn't mean science wins. Right. It no, just, it, it, it just it, means it, like they... They it saw something, it's, experimentally created something. And, and, it, and it actually takes something one step farther, yeah. which says not only did God create a world that worked and made us, mm-hmm. he created us who is smart enough to figure out how it works. Right. Which yeah. is a great gift. There is, I do have to, as a short aside, there is... Uh, a, well, don't a, go too far because I want no, to come back to this. There's a very but, short okay. joke about evolution where the scientists um, challenge God to, you know, make a tree. Uh-huh. Right. You know, we can both do that. And God said, OK, I'll take you up on the challenge. Let's go. And the scientists go, OK. Um, and so God gets together a bunch of dirt and some stuff and pulls it together and goes zap. And, and there's a tree. And the scientists go, OK, we can do that. Now they start gathering up the dirt. And God goes, wait, wait, stop. That's my dirt. I made that. Go get your own. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. It, it tells the truth. It tells the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it's true. Uh, but what what I wanted to say about this this microspheres thing is that it it tells you that creating life from nothing essentially is possible. Definitely, and which means to take that a step further. Uh, to me, it meant that that those conditions are available throughout the galaxy. Yes, and I believe that that is the intention of of that situation. Oh, I I, I am one of these people who's very convinced that there is life elsewhere. Um, I'm also one of the ones, despite. Um, some shows I may have been on that I don't think it's come here yet to visit us. Okay. But, um, but I, I and, and for one, for, for I think some for some good scientific reasons, like you just said, right, we know that the conditions exist that can make it. We have mm-hmm. one experimental data point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's well, several. We have several. Actually. And we have several. And it's repeatable. And it's repeatable. But we have one big one, which sure, is yeah, our yeah. planet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Gotcha. Um, and then the other piece is this is the unscientific reason. If there wasn't life elsewhere, that's a heck of a lot of wasted space. Absolutely. And, you know, totally. I don't think the universe wastes space that much. Yeah. No, well, I mean, that, to me, that is, it's kind of like when, you, you, it's just funny how people don't learn from history. As you look back throughout history and every major scientific advancement, you know, it's like the earth is the center. Everyone believed that. <laughs> oh, they did. Yeah. You know, and then now we look back at it and it's like, oh, that's silly. How could you possibly think right. that with modern, with mathematics? Yeah. Obs- you know, we can observe the planets, the trajectory, everything. And I think we're at a point where I think it's a very old time thought to think like, oh, this is the only place. And we've observed thou- billions of galaxies, which yeah. contain billions of stars. There's not a permutation, you know. Yeah, we've no, talked I, about Drake's equation before. Yeah, no, you know? and and, yeah, and I think I think that's going to be exciting if we ever reach the point where we meet other life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I, I. Well, as Stephen Hawking will tell you, that usually a more significantly advanced civilization takes over and subjugates uh, the, the a less we, advanced. But we could be the more advanced one when we meet. If they can get here, how would they be? Well, no, if we go there first. If oh, we meet them you. by going there. I got you. Star yeah. Trek style. Yeah, Star Trek style. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm just, and, of course, we'll be on a mission of peace. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, we're on a mission of peace until we realize that we can gain something. Right from, from it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now let's move on from evolution, yeah. and let's talk about something that I I've, I've, I love, but it's it's going to be a little, bit, a little heady. I'm yes. going to trust okay. you to yeah. kind of break yeah. it down. But we're talking about particle wave duality. Yes. Which is very similar in a lot of ways to the Holy Trinity, where it things is. exist in several phases, phases at the same time. Right. Yeah, and I think one of the... 
one of the things about particle wave duality, and I think it's kind of the same reason in, in Christianity and Catholicism, um, a similar reason why we have the concept of the Trinity, one God with three persons, is what physicists realized is we had two things that we had experienced very well. We had particles and waves, and we knew how to describe them, right? If you measured something that it had a definite position, you knew where it was, had a definite amount of mass, and you knew where it was moving, that was like the key that you knew you had a particle. Mm-hmm. And right. you could do position. And a wave, I mean, if you're not familiar with waves, the best is just think of ocean waves. I mean, a lot of people do with sound waves and other waves. But the key thing about a wave was it was kind of extended over a region. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist in one place. Mm-hmm. It oscillated. It moved up and down or sideways and backwards. So it had a wave length and a frequency, how often it vibrated and how sort of long the vibration was. And, and that was how you knew you had a wave. Um, and one of the cool things particles do, you know, they sort of run into things, they bounce off mm-hmm. them, they, they go in a straight line, they don't bend around corners, um, except occasionally bullets in strange movies, sure. right? <laughs> right. Um, or in JFK assassination. Uh, right. <laughs> um, and waves, waves are very, I mean, we know about waves, waves go around corners, right? If you're um, talking and someone's around the corner and you're loud like me, they can hear you, mm-hmm. right? If, if waves only travel in a straight line, you can never hear around corners. Right. Right. Waves interfere with each other. You know, that's why you get really cool noise reduction headphones now, right? Because it takes in the sounds around you and it creates exactly the right waves to cancel it. Right. Yeah. And that only happens with waves. If a particle's coming at you, there's not like a particle you can throw at it to throw knock it out it of to the make way. it <laughs> make it negative. Yeah. You can try to knock it out of the way, but you can't make it just go away. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and what happened was when we really looked closely at things like electrons, depending on the experiment we did, we either saw that they were in a definite place, moving with a definite velocity, and we knew where they were, or they were going around corners and interfering with each other and had a wavelength and a frequency. Mm-hmm. Now, we had two choices at that point. We could have given them a completely new name, mm-hmm. but we're not that creative. Right. We needed more artists in the community. <laughs> sure. Um, so we just said, look, they're both waves and particles. We know what a wave is. We know what a particle is. They do both. They're a single thing, the electron, mm-hmm. but they have the properties of both. Um, and we called it wave-particle duality, and then people started getting all wacky about it and making it harder. And that's where your two-cookie rule kicks in, because in our everyday experience, you never interact with something that has both of these. Everything is either a wave or a particle that you deal with. And so your intuition is, well, they're very different. How could they ever be one thing, be both, right? Mm-hmm. And so your brain balks and stops and says, nope, can't be true. Right, right, But in fact, every experiment we do confirms that it is true. I think that that's kind of, like as human beings, like that's kind of where like our brain shorts out. It does. Because we're only limited, the average person without seeing this stuff and and experiencing it are limited to what we believe. Yeah. believe what we see. And you believe what you see and the problem is to see these things always involves an indirect, right? You never actually just see it with your eye. You're doing some indirect measurement using tools and experiments and it's the data you're getting out that tells you what you're seeing. And so you're always interpreting it through these other steps. Yeah. Well, and I think even the fact that it exists and the concept of the Trinity, it, it's, it's just interesting how you see these, these themes, these broad themes that kind of exist that are surprisingly rooted in science. Yeah. Um, that maybe the writer didn't know that, but somehow through just human experience is able to convey that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's interesting to me. It is, and it's fascinating how that comes about. Yeah. Uh, Now let's talk about 
Now, Newtonian physics versus uh, relativity. Right. So this is another one of those kind of two-cookie rule kind of things. Right? Yeah. Though, actually, in a weird way, and people have said this before, um, relativity turns out to be easier to understand than quantum mechanics. Okay. Um, there, there is a, a Richard Feynman's a famous physicist who wrote a lot of popular books, and he's famous for being quoted as saying, you know, with relativity, as soon as it came out, almost everybody understood it conceptually. Okay. Who worked with it? Um, nobody understands quantum mechanics yet. So is that true? No. Well, I mean, I think conceptually, it's really hard to understand quantum mechanics because of just what I said. This intuition around what does it mean to both be a wave and a particle is yeah. really hard. Relativity is much simpler because what Einstein really just added is, you know, we're all used to space. You move left, right, up, down, front, and back. That's why it's three dimensions. There's three directions you can go. Um, and we're all actually very useful to the idea, used to the idea that space, in a sense, is kind of relative to whether you're moving or not, mm-hmm. right? So if, if, if you're moving and I'm standing still and you go by on a train, right, we're going to use different language to describe things that happen. If you throw a ball sure. up in the air straight relative to you as you're moving by me, you just see the ball go up and down in front of you. Right. I see the ball travel an arc. Because right. you and the ball are all moving together. So you throw it up, right. but it's moving forward, and you catch it. So we describe the same situation, but there's a relativeness to it that we have to work through. Mm-hmm. And we understand the rules, and we all have a good intuition for that if we, we've done it. You know, anyone who's been sitting with a plane next to them or a train next to them, and they're in one, and you're kind of not quite awake, and you're looking out the window, and the other one moves and not you, there's that moment of like, wait, am I moving or are they moving? Right. Right. You're, you're confused. And again, that's that relative motion thing. Like two cars going the same speed on the highway, you're, yeah. you're, it looks like you're not moving. It looks like you're not moving, but exactly. You're going but you're going fast. very fast. So that we all understand. And that's relativity from a space point of view. Got it. Space is relative. How you describe space depends on you moving. Well, it's funny it took that long to kind of come up with that term because it seems pretty, that seems well, genuinely that, intuitive. But it, That I, Galileo did. Okay. That was not Einstein. So that okay. had been around for a long time. Yeah, because so, that only really matters when you start affecting gravity and then yeah. time. And yeah. then so Einstein came around and said, well, wait. Okay, what about time? Yeah. Up till then, we all assumed in physics that everybody's time was measured in the same way. Time was absolute, didn't change. And what Einstein realized is you kind of have two choices in life. The speed of light could be constant, independent of who you are and whether you're moving. Mm-hmm. And Maxwell's equations, Maxwell had figured out how to describe light, suggested that that was true, that the speed of light was constant no matter who was moving. Mm -hmm. If that's true, then time has to change. If you think about it, right, because velocity is distance over time, we've just decided that distances are different if you're moving. Mm -hmm. But if if light speed is always going to be the same and distance changed and it's distance over time, time has to change. Right. So that's, that's Einstein's idea in a nutshell. That's all he, he really decided to do. Got it. And then he said, let's explore what it means and what predictions we can make in measurement. Turns out every measurement you do says, you know what? Time really does change if you're moving. And the best experiment you can do is when your GPS works because it's using satellites that are moving at a different speed than you are. Right. And those, all the software and the good GPSs know, need to adjust for the fact that the clocks on the satellite keep a different time than the clock in your phone because right. they're moving at different speeds. Right. And so the fact every time every human being uses their GPS and it works, 
they've tested Einstein's theory of relativity. That's incredible. Which is amazing. I mean, that it's it is perhaps the most tested theory hmm. in all of science. Okay. Because of what we've done. Uh, now, when we talk about that. I think you also, it kind of brings the, these rules of science, you know, we start talking about how did God put these things into right. order. You describe him as the ultimate superhero. Yes. So how, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I, I think, you know, there, there's two senses of it. One is we think of superheroes of having, you know, amazing powers and can do a lot of stuff. And in general, we think of them doing good. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. And, and Otherwise I, they're a supervillain. Otherwise they're a supervillain. Um, and so I, 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 when I think of God and when I think of the fullness of reality, you know, one of the most amazing acts to me is to create physical reality that is both sufficiently complex that things like us and life and consciousness can arise, mm-hmm. but so well done that the rules can be discovered and make sense and are very reproducible. Right. And that's kind of an amazing feat in my mind. And that's one of the reasons I would call God the ultimate superhero. Well, it makes sense. I mean, when you talk about how t- just to, to maintain the physical order, you know, and, it, the, you know, the, f- the forces, you know, what holds a nucleus together, what all these things have to be, you know, ex- if they were in adjusted any other way, life wouldn't exist. Yeah. And to me, that's almost evidence of some sort of intervention. You know, I, I you know, I think so. I think a lot of people, the one the one um, caveat I always give is. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, a lot of people like to use the fact that we've discovered in science how fine-tuned the universe is mm-hmm. um, to say, well, that's proof God had to exist and create it. And I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm like the wet blanket who says, I'm not going to go as far as to say that's proof. You know, I, I <laughs> right. like that. But, you know, the number of times I've seen science be able to come up with an explanation for something physical that seems hard to explain if you if you hang too much of your faith or belief in God on something we don't quite understand from science, you risk, well, what happens when science is able to explain it? Right. And God is big enough, right? When I think again, and when I talk about that fullness of reality idea, there's so much more. I don't need to worry about the gaps in our scientific knowledge as proof that God exists. Right. Well, that makes sense. Let's talk about the, the God and the womb theory. Because oh, yeah. Because I think that I like this a lot. This is my favorite new metaphor. Well, let's do it. So I, I was trying to figure out how to explain to people this idea of a physical reality and a fullness of reality. And I thought, right. you know, just think of the child in the mother's womb. Mm-hmm. And it actually came out of trying to think about how to better explain God creating the universe, but that creation following all the rules of the Big Bang Theory. Okay. Right? And so I do joke, okay, it's a metaphor. Okay. So please don't ask me about the dad. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I won't. No questions. You know, you know we're, we're, we're talking about the spontaneous baby in the womb here. I know sure. it's a weird biology. Virgin but Mary, as I, they got but, it. It's but as I said story. earlier, I'm a physicist, not a biologist. So <laughs> right. I'm allowed to, you know, mess with biological metaphors. Sure. But, you know, we know if, if you were inside the child uh-huh. as a little teeny scientist going around, and, and we think of the child as the metaphor for physical reality, you would be able to discover all the rules that that child obeys. Mm-hmm. Right. And all the rules that are embedded in their genetics for growth and expansion and how all the different pieces work. You really wouldn't directly be able to discover the existence of the mother. I mean, mm-hmm. if you got really lucky and found the umbilical cord, right. maybe. That's but again, metaphor. So okay. you're not allowed to find the umbilical cord. Okay. Right. But there is a sense in which, I mean, the mother clearly has a profound impact on the child. 
The child is both part of the mother and separate while in the womb. Mm-hmm. And it really captures this idea of a God that's bigger than physical reality, mm-hmm. but integrated into physical reality, integrating and interacting with it. And physical reality is completely dependent on God for its existence. Mm-hmm. Right? Without the mother, the child in the womb would never be there. And so, it's again, metaphor, it's a thing to meditate on, but it's a way to envision creation involving a God that actually created the physical world and a physical world and a fullness of reality that's both integrated and where God's present, but God's also transcendent and more than the physical reality. Well, look, I love this metaphor, and I'm yeah. actually going to. Let's talk about the umbilical cord. You, you right. blew it off, but let's talk about no, it. No, it, it, yeah, no, no, it's good. No, because it's important. Because I think if that was a good metaphor, I really think that there would be something where God would want us to discover what that was. And, and, and that's the piece that still would take a while to, to get and understand. And I think, okay, okay, Dan, as always, in conversation yeah. with you, you've yeah. improved my thinking. It's analytical mastermind. Right. You, you know are. <laughs> it is. And, and I think that piece is that connection you know, that we as humans have directly to God. Absolutely. And it could be our soul, could be whatever language you want to use, our spirit. Yeah. But it's that ability to feel that connection and know God's there. Yeah, I think that makes so the we, metaphor we keep stronger. The metaf- oh, we love it. I'm yeah, there. I like it. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll make it the... The, the Dan addendum to the, the metaphor. The, the addendum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about one other concept um, uh, that's really important, and I think this is one of those fundamental blocks that we're kind of getting into um, later in the conversation. But this is another one that I think explains so much, and that's emergent properties. Yes. Now, you're the master of foam. Yes. If you were a superhero, you would be foaming. Y- yeah, <laughs> Michael Foman. Um, but Dunn, explain explain this to me. I'm so I, I think this is one thing that's really cool. And it's funny. It's been around in science now probably since the 70s. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't really had the breakthrough moment that relativity and quantum mechanics has. Right. Right. And I don't know why. Well, I think because it's hard. Right. It, it, I guess. Yeah. It's, and it's, we haven't. Fi- well, you know why? We don't have a good marketing agent. We haven't figured out how That's to make it cool, which is what you, you really need. Yeah. But the, the idea is when you look at systems, right, science for most of its history has been what we call reductionist. It says mm. if you understand the pieces, mm. you understand everything. Yeah. Right. Emergent phenomena says, you know, there are some things that are sufficiently complex. We like to use the word nonlinear because they're how they interact, that their properties emerge out of the whole system and can't be explained by the smallest pieces. Mm-hmm. And foam is a great example of this. It's my favorite one to use because I study it, but it's also, I think, very useful. Mm-hmm. These are gas bubbles with liquid walls. Everybody's played with shaving cream or whipped cream or whatever your favorite foam is. Right. right? Now, let's say that again. Liquid, liquid, liquid walls, walls with gas bubbles. Gas in the inside. Right. Mm-hmm. And every molecule in there is what we call a fluid. It's free to move. Mm-hmm. It moves around. So if you did the typical, let's reduce it to its you know, fundamental pieces, you'd look at the molecules and you'd say, this thing is a fluid. It mm-hmm. flows. Well, when you look at the entire foam, if you put shaving cream in your hand, it holds its shape. And that's the fundamental definition of a solid. Right. So how did the solid property emerge out of purely liquid pieces? And that's actually what I study in my research. We do that a lot. But it, it really shows that there's a challenge when looking even at physical systems. If you're a part of it, and you're not outside of it, there's properties of it you might be missing. Right. And for me, I, this is most exciting when you start talking about consciousness. 
Right, yeah, that's the next level. Yeah. Well, then let me talk about the foam really quickly. Because sure. while I'm sitting here, I was kicking this stuff around in my head. Now, it is a liquid wall, but when you put air inside of it and it closes and it makes the bubble, the sphere, right. that is kind of like a solid. Well, so the, the sphere itself, the bubble, and that's why you realize, so with emergence properties, part of the trick is figuring out what's the right scale to look at. Okay. And for foam, probably the right scale are the bubbles. Those are now the units that have right, the interesting exactly. properties. Totally. Yeah. So they, they're deformable, but not completely deformable, and they fundamentally get in each other's way, right. and that's why you end up with a solid. Right. So exactly right. But you don't look at the molecules, right? No, exactly. Yeah. But but the, so the building block is the is the bubble itself. But the foam has way different properties than an individual bubble, exactly. Or even so, four bubbles, yeah. Right. So then you have to ask the question: How many bubbles does it take to make a foam? Twenty to twenty-five, if your book is accurate. And I think it is. Right. So yeah. See, I read. See, I, you read. I, hey, you're good. I'm telling yeah. you, man. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but now, now let's talk about consciousness. So I, I wanted to break that down because. When you start making it more, if you just jump to, oh, consciousness is because of neurons, complex, right. you know, then it's like, oh, yeah, get out of here. But now when you describe it, like, oh, wait a second, that exists, and it exists in other things besides foam, um, let's talk about neuron level and bring so, consciousness. So one of the things that happens, I've noticed, is there seems to be this assumption, because the only th place we've experienced consciousness is in people, mm -hmm. right, that there's something about it being neurons that's special. Well, but there are because some higher-level mammals that are conscious. Well, again, but they also have a, neurons in a brain like us. I see. So okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I, I yes, the, the fact that we you're very human-centered. I'm here. very human-centered. I apologize. Centered. Yeah. Okay. Go but, on. But I see what you mean. At Got some it. point, we we assume specifically it's things with brains. Right. A, a collection okay. of neurons, whether it be ganglia or right. pseudo-brain. And, and philosophers had look, have looked at this a lot, but it, it's not as much in our common thinking. So when I talk about the foams, right, as you correctly identified, for a foam, it's the bubbles that matter. Mm -hmm. Now there's other things. A pile of sand, is that a solid or a liquid? Mm. Well, the sand particles, the molecules are solid. Right. But we all know we can move sand and pour it and make it flow. Right. So there's this whole class of what we call complex fluids. They're all, what's similar about them is they have, they're made up of structures like grains of sand, bubbles, um, slurries and paste have particles in it. They're composed of these different things where the relevant unit, the bubble, the sand, may or may not be as relevant as we think, right? It's the fact that there's an object there that interacts. Okay. And then you get solid and liquid-like behavior. So I think... The key with consciousness, and this is what I tried to do when I talked about emergence, is to recognize it's probably not the neurons that are the key. For us, it's the neurons that are the key because that's what we have. Mm -hmm. But it's the complexity and the rules they obey when they interact. So if you take anything else of that type of complexity mm -hmm. that can interact, doesn't matter if it's neurons or something else, you would get consciousness. Got it. And now what's really cool from a science point of view mm -hmm. is we're probably getting to a point where we can really ask those questions in systems like computers. Like quantum computing? Well, even just regular computers. Like, okay. what would it take? Could you take computers and make the complexity that matches a brain and actually get consciousness? I don't want to ask those questions. I know. They're scary questions. Have you seen Terminator? That's what, that's yes, what happens exactly. when people ask those and, questions. And I've seen it over. And the next Terminator and the next Terminator because right. the, <laughs> the killed Terminator keeps coming back. Yeah. But, well, you know, Schwarzenegger needs some paycheck. Right. 
now, now let's talk about. Uh, I want to talk about. We promised Plinko. I know we're right. We're, let's take a quick step back because I think this was one of those things that it put quantum mechanics into like focus for me. Uh, and I think it's an easy way to explain it. When you look at like um, a pool table, if you you can predict if you bonk one ball into another one, the angle you can right. decide where they're going to go. When you look at Plinko, you can kind of this for the first couple, um, you know, pegs. Right. You can kind of predict where it's going to go, but after that, it becomes a probability of whether to go left or right. Right. And it's actually very difficult on a physics level to predict that. As a kid, I always thought everything was totally predictable, and it turns out it's not at right. all. Right. And there's actually what's even more subtle and disturbing. There's two levels of unpredictability. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So with the Plinko one, what's happening, this is what we call a nonlinear system. It has enough interactions that there is an underlying equation that's what we in physics call deterministic. Okay. Meaning that the ball really does, if, if this was true, that you could find the exact same initial condition, mm -hmm. the ball really would do the exact same thing every time. But the initial can okay right if you if you always drop the ball into the machine in the Plinko thing in the exact same way with the exact same speed the exact same ball, it would do the exact same thing provided that even but, the surface and the and friction the surface, surface stayed exactly the same theory out of right. the way yeah okay. it all stayed exactly the same and so what happens though is if something's sufficiently nonlinear right you get this unpredictability it's what comes out of chaos theory we call it sensitive. Um, dependence on initial conditions. And it's real. It's real unpredictability. Okay. It really is that after a certain point, we know the error in our prediction, how it grows and how big it gets. Mm -hmm. So that's one level of randomness that's real. It's real randomness. But it's a different type of randomness than what happens in quantum mechanics. Okay. So in quantum mechanics, um, the act of measurement involves an intrinsic roll of the dice at that point. So quantum mechanics is this really weird thing we mentioned, the wave-particle duality. That I feel I can explain, and it seems weird, but it really isn't. Mm -hmm. The part that's truly weird that I can't explain, right, where the two-cookie rule doesn't really even help us anymore, but is the fact that it's to the best of our ability, the way we think fundamentally the world works, is the probability of the various values you might get if you measure something is what evolves in time. And then when you go and do a measurement, you get an answer, and you get that answer with the probabilities associated with at it. At that particular moment At that particular time. moment in time. And then the system starts up again. Right. And that's what's weird. And that's the piece where we think we don't have a full understanding of quantum mechanics because we have this piece, the measurement problem it's called, yeah. that we really can't explain. It, we can do it really well. I said relativity is one of the best tested theories. Quantum mechanics is a close second if not tied for first, right? It's amazing how predictably powerful this theory is. So we know there's some truths in there. Mm -hmm. We just don't really know what they are. No, that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure you're right. I'm gonna yeah. just go on. <laughs> but no, again, that, that's where even physicists, we start going, whoa. So let, let's take that a step further. When you talk about, this is a perfect segue into miracles because right. quantum mechanics is, might as well be a miracle for the way it works, <laughs> you know? Uh, but, but I do love that, you know, one of the things that always bugs me about sporting events is when people, like, they pray for their team and you see people on the, you know, the field, right. like, praying to God or whatever. You know, I would love to think that he was a fan of my sports team, but that seems ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but but how how do you describe miracles? Like, Well, you know, I've really, and, and actually, 
I recently wrote an article for a Catholic magazine on miracles. It's in, a, in St. Anthony Messenger. It came out in their December issue because it was a topic that even after writing the chapter in the book, I wasn't completely like satisfied with. Well, because you are uh, Catholic, and every saint yeah. must perform three miracles of sainthood. Right. But I do think, in the end of the day, what I say to people is, it's certainly completely within God's power if God wants to, to violate the laws of physics. Sure. And if he does it once here or once there, science would never be able to prove or disprove that, because by definition, we're about doing repeatable measurements. Okay, right, right, right. So let's, let's just all agree that that could happen. Okay. And I, as a scientist, really can't say one thing or another about it. Right. However, going back to our truth versus myth, I do think what is true from my experience, and again, it's just my experience, but from many others, is that God acts in the world and that the true miracles are the transformations of people's lives, right? That we have the ability to actually do things in a different way. We mm-hmm. can transform who we are and change who we are. And when I look at all the miracles in the Bible, for instance, again, it goes back to that Noah story, right? Mm-hmm. These, I think, were people who said, oh, they had some deep, amazing, transformative experience of God. Now they're going to have to try and explain it to their friends. Right. Right. And, and maybe, you know, maybe for some of them, it really did feel like maybe it really was a healing or maybe it was some other moment. And so that was the easy language to use. For some of them, maybe it was hard to imagine and they, they picked a different language. But to me, it, it's kind of a little silly from the science side to discount that all experience of gods are either illusions or you know, mental disease or something else, that there's sure. nothing there. That seems a bit arrogant on the science side. Yeah. And it also seems a, a bit unfair to those people to think the exciting thing was just the physical aspect of it or if a physical law was broken when really the exciting thing was the personal transformation, that personal experience, that interaction they had. Sure. And so that's kind of where I've been at it. And to me, it just, it makes sense. You know, I guess the, the, the miracle part doesn't make sense to me because it does require magic. Because even if God, sus- even if God suspended the, some law, right? right? There's a chain reaction to that. If he suspends gravity, what is it localized? The one right, yeah. Spot, so, there's so a chain if, reaction to suspension. Uh, personally, I don't think God ever needs to or does act by violating physical laws. Okay. And that's why I say there's a difference between miracle and magic. Okay. Right. But for me, wh- when people tell me, oh, but I saw this or that and this violated physical laws, my, my, my reaction to them is, well, as a scientist, I can't say yes or no to you. Right, because there's, well, there's also a human perception. there's a human that. perception element. Mm-hmm. And I just would like to point out to them that would your, is your sort of experience of God and belief in God dependent on the fact that it violated physical law? Oh, I see. Or okay. was that just... So I think healings are the easiest ones to talk about. Let's talk let, about faith healing. Because let, let's face it, the, uh, going back to my earlier statement, the human body is just complex. But yeah. And, and as one of my friends who was both a PhD in physics and an MD doctor said once, the problem with a lot of medicine is that humans are both designed to get better and to ultimately die. Right. So, right. So, almost, so almost anything you do in medicine, a certain amount of your population will get better mm-hmm. and a certain amount will die. Right. That's just what happens. Certainly not meaning all of them. All of them, yeah. Right, but yeah. but hopefully during the course of your study, only a few or less, right? <laughs> yeah, that is something else. <laughs> right, yeah, there's on. something else going on. So so when it comes to people experiencing healings in their life, you know, from my perspective, if there's something about the healing that opened you to an experience of a greater reality and to God that transformed your life, that that's really cool and go with that. 
But if your entire belief in a God depends on the fact that God magically zapped you then, mm-hmm. right? If at some point science and medicine catches up and mm-hmm. is able to show how that was just normal, right? Right. What's going to happen to your faith? It shakes the faith. The, right. Well, yeah, exactly and, and right. And so it's not that I discount those experiences. It's like for me personally, and I would think for someone, you wouldn't want to bet your whole belief system on the fact that God chose that one random moment. Right. And the flip side of it, it does tend to me to create a somewhat arbitrary God. Mm-hmm. Why am I breaking physical laws for you and not this person over here? Right. right. Did you really pray that much harder? Did you really pray that much better? Yeah. Um, I was actually reading something um, just the other day, and it, it was by, a, I forget the name of him, but a very early Christian who was talking about the fact that, look, Suffering just exists. That's part of the natural world, Mm -hmm. right? There's the laws of the world, and because there's laws of the world, there's pain, there's injury, there's disease, people die, right? And what our our belief in God is supposed to do is how we respond, and this goes back to free will, how we choose to react to those is what will lead us to either better happiness or, or even more suffering. And that's where the miracle is, when you can kind of let God or whatever into your life and overcome the natural sufferings that are part of just being human. Yeah, that to me is an amazing miracle because we all know those people who you look at them and you're like, my God, how can you be like happy with how horrible your life seems? Sure. Yeah. Right. Or my God, how can you be so miserable with how good your life is? <laughs> right. Yeah. I ask right? that question more often. <laughs> right. You know, and, and when you when you look at that, you, you realize there's something else going on here besides just whether physical laws get violated by a magic act. Right. No, that that's true. And you, you, you didn't we didn't go into the faith healers thing, but there is yeah. this concept uh, and it's proven that the things you believe you oh, yeah. can manifest in, and in the world. Yeah. No, I mean, the placebo effect oh, is yeah. just very well documented. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's amazing. And it just goes to show how little we know. I mean, one of the things I think about is people talk about, and not to discount the horror and pain of cancer because it's not a good thing or a fun thing. Right. Right. But we, 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 we have to keep in mind our body though more often than not if cancer gets bad enough our body does get overrun right for people who seem to magically or specially get healed from cancer it's not beyond the realm of biology to think that not all bodies are equal and some are probably much better at fighting cancer than others yeah definitely and and so it it doesn't have to be a magical miracle for you to get better right but again like you said as long as the the message is what's important the message is what matters and how you interpret life and how you Kind of go through it. Let's yep. talk about free will before we finish. It, it's my favorite subject. Let's do it. So, I, I mean, when I wrote the book, I, it wasn't really on my radar that I was going to come to this point at the end. But I realized, and this is why um, most philosophers don't necessarily do this, but I separated consciousness and free will on purpose. Okay. And defined consciousness more narrowly than most people do as just our self-awareness, mm-hmm. not necessarily our ability to act. Because free will to me is like the most interesting question. It's even more interesting than whether God exists or not. Okay. Because it really, it, and it, it's, I feel what every great story is about. It's what humans have struggled with forever. And, and I think, I hate to say it, you know, if you look at the superhero world, which we also interact in. I love it, yeah. Right? You know, it, it, those stories are powerful because it's a little bit about how much of the world do I really get to control. Right. Right. What, is, is it all just fate? Is it all out of my control? Is it all just laws of physics? 
and I'm just a bunch of molecules moving through space, and, and you and I are only, we're not really having a conversation, just molecules are randomly moving, and, right. and we're under the illusion that this is meaning anything. Sure. Or are there things in life that I actually have choice about? Mm -hmm. And for me, the most powerful piece of the Judeo-Christian tradition is it's come down firmly on the side of choice. That humans were created, and part of being in the image of God is that we have the ability to make choices. And that's the one aspect of being human that if it's true, um, and I've talked to a few people who try to study choice and stuff, and I really push them on this. I don't think we know what, I, we, we know intuitively what true choice means, but I don't think you can define it well enough to do a science experiment. No, that's fair. And because I think there's, I think in some ways, I'm going to counteract you here. I yeah. think choice can in some ways be an illusion because it, it can be. Because we're human beings, and as Pavlov has shown, when certain things happen, we react. Yep. And given those same stimuli, it is it is inherent to the human condition to respond in the exact same way. It is. And so to make those major choices you're talking about requires a change in the initial stimuli or in the processing part when you make your decision, which I don't think most people do. do no, and that's why, to me, at the end of the day, whether we actually have free choice or not is the real question. Because I... From a physics point of view, we talked already about where randomness might come from, from mm -hmm. quantum mechanics, chaos right. theory. That is very different than making choices. And so there is mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. no physical explanation that I've been able to find or think of or anyone's been able to share with me that could explain true choice, the true ability to change your internal mechanisms and respond differently. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think we all have known of stories or people who faced with things you know, addicts, I think, are an interesting example who actually something happens and they make that choice to take the steps to end their addiction. Mm -hmm. And the other piece you notice about choice is not a one-time thing. It takes a lot of work once you've made that choice. Yeah, definitely. And to me, that's what religious conversion is about, right? It's a choice to say, I'm going to actually allow God to change me in a way that I can now be different, hopefully better, mm -hmm. but I'm also going to commit to a set of practices that's why I say I'm a practicing Catholic. I, somebody once right. said this and said, haven't got it right yet. I think it was actually Stephen Colbert. Haven't got it right yet, but I'm still trying. So I'm a right. practicing Catholic. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's things we do in our, the reason we have religious practices is in principle to help us make these new habits the next. So, so when that stimuli comes, you make the choice you want, not the choice you were making before without thinking. Right. So it's where we actually have free will, where we actually have choice. Obviously, I don't have the choice to fly. I mean, right. just with, except getting an airplane, right? I mean, to spontaneously fly. So there are, we're limited. We have a, a limiting, but there is some fundamental choice. And if we do have that, to me, that's proof that there's more than physical reality because the laws of physics don't allow for it. And that mm -hmm. I'll go to the mat with. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's, again, going back to humility, there's probably somebody who knows I'm wrong, but <laughs> I haven't met them yet. Um, and, and so given that physical reality does not allow for free choice. And deep in my gut, I feel there are these moments where you can actually decide to do something different than what the stimuli is making you do. Yeah. I think there's got to be something more. Uh, I, I think so. Um, I mean, that's a, I don't know where to go from there. I think yeah. that's a good place to end it. Like, you really got to think about that. You really do. I think that's, that's kind of the big one. Stunned silence is where I am yep. right now, almost. Doesn't happen to me very often. <laughs>
Uh, now, how can, we've talked about we've just scratched the surface here. Uh, yeah. How can people find your book and get in touch with so you? So the do book, all that? Divine Science: Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith, is obviously available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble online. Um, it's also it's published by Franciscan Media, so it's available at their websites. Um, I'm at. They can reach me by email at mdenon at uci.edu. They could probably get the book uh, from you too. I imagine they, they want could to come probably in if they could find me. Yeah. Um, th- you know, they can follow me on Facebook. It's actually at Pro- no. Well, Facebook's Prof Denon Michael, mm-hmm. um, and my Twitter's at Denon Michael. They can occasionally find me in this place, Fascinating Fights. Always a good place to find me. Tell me about that yeah. incredible show. <laughs> so it's a great show. <laughs> um, but and and I am now actually on Speaker Hub. Speaker Hub, what is which that? is a website where you can go and hire speakers. So if if they're looking for a speaker, I I, I love to go talk about this and other subjects. Um, but those are all good ways to find me. Well, I will put links up to that, to the book, uh, and to everything. Uh, as always, spirited conversation. You oh, a lot of my fun. mind. Uh, this is great stuff. Thank you, Double D. Uh, cool. Thank you for for being on the show again, uh, and thank you to everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E. A. Barrientos. If you want to hear more Fascinating Nouns episodes, go to fascinatingnouns.com where you can listen to our entire archive as well as get more involved with extras. The bottom of the page, you'll see several links to social media. We got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube. You can go there and check out videos and additional bonus features and footage and episodes. Uh, it is a wealth of information if you like this show. And also, if you like what I do, you can go to DanielJGlenn.com and you can listen to all of the projects, check out some of the other stuff that I'm doing. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.